Hello and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. That's 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey and I'm a professor of Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And today I'm going to continue with my reading of the autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist woman by Alexandra Kolontai, which she wrote in the 20s. So now she is going to be returning to Norway in the spring of 1916. And so we're getting here to the year that leads up to the February Revolution in Russia, which is the initial abdication of the Tsar, and then ultimately to the October Revolution, which brings the Bolsheviks into power. And by this point, Kolontai herself is associated and affiliated with the Bolsheviks, and she will become the first commissar of social welfare in the new Soviet Union. So I'm going to just jump right in, and then maybe I'll pause and reflect a little bit on some of these writings, but I'm trying to get through this entire autobiography uh, and not take too many episodes while still keeping these episodes under 17 minutes. So here we go. I returned to Norway in the spring of 1916. I love Norway with its incomparable fjords and its majestic mountains, its courageous, gifted, and industrious people. At the time, I lived on the famous Holmenkollen near Oslo and continued to work with the view of wielding together all the forces of the internationalists in opposition to the world war. I shared Lenin's view, which aimed at spreading the conviction that the war could be defeated only by the revolution, by the uprising of the workers. I was in substantial agreement with Lenin and stood much closer to him than many of his older followers and friends. But my sojourn in Norway was not a long one because only a few months after I arrived, I had to embark on a second journey to America, where I remained till shortly before the outbreak of the Russian Revolution. For me, the situation in America had changed insofar as, in the meantime, many Russian party comrades had come over, Trotsky among others. We worked zealously for the new Workers International, but America's intervention in the war aggravated our activity. So here, Kolontai is actually referring to a period when she was working in New York with Trotsky on a newspaper, and they were generally advocating uh, that the United States stay out of the war. But of course, as we know, that didn't work out so well. Okay, now back to Kolontai. I had already been in Norway for several weeks when the Russian people rose up against absolutism and dethroned the Tsar. A festive mood reigned among all our political friends, but I harbored no illusions because I knew that the overthrow of the Tsar would only be the beginning of even more momentous events and difficult social struggles, so I hastened back to Russia in March of 1917. I was one of the first political immigrants who came back to the liberated homeland. Torneo, the tiny frontier town lying north of the Swedish-Finnish frontiers, through which I had to pass, was still in the grip of a cruel winter. A sleigh carried me across the river which marks the frontier. On Russian soil stood a soldier. A bright red ribbon fluttered on his chest. Your identity papers, please, citizeness. I have none. I am a political refugee. Your name? I identified myself. A young officer was summoned. Yes, my name was on the list of political refugees who were to be freely admitted into the country by order of the Workers and Soldiers Soviet. 
The young officer helped me out of the sleigh and kissed my hand almost reverently. I was standing on the Republican soil of liberated Russia. Could that be possible? It was one of the happiest moments of my whole life. Four months later, by order of the Kerensky regime, the provisional government, that same charming young officer placed me under arrest as a dangerous Bolshevik at the Torneo Frontier station. <laughs> Such is life's irony. So now the next section of her autobiography is called The Years of Revolution. And this begins the saga of her experiences of the October Revolution. So overwhelming was the rush of subsequent events that to this very day, I really do not know what I should describe and emphasize. What have I accomplished, desired, achieved? Was there altogether an individual will at that time? Was it not only the omnipotent storm of the revolution, the command of the active awakened masses that determined our will and action? Was there altogether a single human being who would not have bowed to the general will? There were only masses of people bound together in a bipartite will, which operated either for or against the revolution, for or against ending the war, and which sided for or against the power of the Soviets. Looking back, one perceives only a mass operation, struggle, and action. In reality, there were no heroes or leaders. It was the people, the working people, in soldiers' uniform or in civilian attire, who controlled the situation and who recorded its will indelibly in the history of the country and mankind. It was a sultry summer, a crucial summer of the revolutionary flood tide in 1917. At first, the social storm raged only in the countryside. The peasants set fire to the nests of the gentlefolk. In the cities, the struggle that raged was between the advocates of a Republican bourgeois Russia and the socialist aspirations of the Bolsheviks. As I have previously stated, I belonged to the Bolsheviks. Thus, immediately, from the first days onwards, I found an absolute enormous pile of work waiting for me. Once more, the issue was to wage a struggle against the war, against coalescence with the liberal bourgeoisie, and for the power of the workers' councils, the Soviets. The natural consequence of this stand was that the bourgeois newspapers branded me as a mad female Bolshevik. But this bothered me not at all. My field of activity was immense, and my followers, factory workers, and women soldiers numbered thousands. At this time, I was very popular, especially as an orator, and at the same time, hated and viciously attacked by the bourgeois press. Thus, it was a stroke of luck that I was so weighed down with current work that I found hardly any time to read the attacks and slanders against me. The hate directed against me, allegedly because I had been in the pay of the German Kaiser for the purpose of weakening the Russian front, grew to monstrous proportions. So I want to stop here for a second and just say that this is 1917 in Russia, way before the internet, way before Facebook and Twitter and all of these social media sites where people abuse and troll each other. And in fact, Alexandra Kollontai was being desperately and deeply trolled by the bourgeois press. I've actually read some of this material in her biographies, the one by Kathy Porter, 
also the one by Barbara Ann Clements. And she was really brutally taken down as this mad, crazy Bolshevik woman. They made fun of her clothes. They made fun of the way she looked. They made fun of the fact that she didn't have a husband. They were pretty mean ad hominem attacks. And so I think the moral of this story in some ways is kind of funny and interesting, which is that people have always hated women in power, women in positions of power, and especially when they become popular with the people, and they will attack them brutally. It's just that in 2019, 102 years later, they do it on social media. And in 1917 in Russia, they just did it in the newspapers and through vicious gossip and other such uh, tactics. But the underlying trolling of women in power and positions of power really hasn't changed all that much. All right, back to Colin Tai. One of the most burning questions of the day was the high cost of living and the growing scarcity of vital necessities. Thus, the woman of the poverty-stricken strata had an indescribably hard time of it. Precisely this situation prepared the terrain in the party for work with women, so that very soon we were able to accomplish useful work. Already in May of 1917, a weekly called The Women Workers made its debut. I authored an appeal to women against the high cost of living and the war. The first mass meeting, packed with thousands of people, that took place in Russia under the provisional government, was organized by us, by the Bolsheviks. Kerensky and his ministers made no secret of their hatred of me, the, quote, instigator of the spirit of disorganization, unquote, in the army. One particular article of mine in Pravda, in which I interceded for German prisoners of war, unleashed a veritable storm of indignation on the part of patriotic-minded circles. When in April, Lenin delivered his famous programmatic speech within the frame of the Soviets, I was the only one of his party comrades who took the poor to support his theses. What hatred this particular act kindled against me! Often I had to jump off tram cars before people recognized me, since I had become a topical theme of the day and often bore personal witness to the most incredible abuse and lies directed against me. I should like to cite a small example which can show how the enemy worked with might and main to defame me. At the time, the newspapers hostile to me were already writing about the Kolontai party dresses, which particularly then was laughable because my trunk had been lost en route to Russia, so I always wore the one and the same dress. There was even a little street ballad that commented on Lenin and me in verse. There was also nothing extraordinary in the fact that, threatened as I was by irritated mobs, I was always protected from the worst only by the courageous intercession of my friends and party comrades. Nevertheless, I myself personally experienced little of the hatred around me, and of course, there was also a great number of enthusiastic friends, the workers, the sailors, the soldiers who were utterly devoted to me. Moreover, the number of our followers grew from day to day. Already in April, I was a member of the Soviet executive, which in reality was the guiding political body of the moment, to which I belonged as the only woman and over a long period. In May of 1917, I took part in the strike of women laundry workers who set forth the demand that all laundries be municipalized. 
The struggle lasted six weeks. Nevertheless, the principal demand of the women laundry workers remained unmet by the Kerensky regime. At the end of June, I was sent by my party to Stockholm as a delegate to an international consultation which was interrupted when news reached us of the July uprising against the provisional government and of the extremely harsh measures that the government was taking against the Bolsheviks. Many of our leading party comrades had already been arrested. Others, including Lenin, had managed to escape and go into hiding. The Bolsheviks were accused of high treason and branded as spies of the German Kaiser. The uprising was brought to a standstill and the coalition regime retaliated against all those who had manifested sympathy for the Bolsheviks. I immediately returned to Russia, although my friends and party comrades considered this to be a risky undertaking. They wanted me to go to Sweden and await the course of events. Well-intentioned as these councils were, and correct as they also appeared to me later, I nevertheless could not heed them. I simply had to go back. Otherwise, it would appear to me as an act of cowardice to take advantage of the privilege that had become mine of remaining wholly immune from the persecutions of the provisional government when a great number of my political friends were sitting in jail. Later, I realized that perhaps I might have been able to be more useful to our cause from Sweden, but I was under the compulsion of the moment. By order of the Kerensky regime, I was arrested at the border of Torneo and subjected to the most boorish treatment as a spy. But the arrest itself proceeded quite theatrically. During the inspection of my passport, I was requested to step into the commandant's office. I understood what that meant. A number of soldiers were standing in an enormous room, pressed close against each other. Two young officers were also present, one of them being the charming young man who had received me so amiably only four months previously. A veritable silence prevailed in the room. The facial expression of the first officer betrayed a great nervousness. Composed, I waited to see what would happen next. You are under arrest, explained the officer. So, has the counter-revolution triumphed? Do we again have a monarchy? No, was the gruff reply. You are under arrest by order of the provisional government. I have been expecting it. Please, let my suitcase be brought in. I don't want it to be lost. But of course, lieutenant, the suitcase. I saw how the officers heaved a sigh of relief and how the soldiers left the room with displeasure writ large on their faces. Later, I learned that my arrest had occasioned a protest among the soldiers who insisted upon witnessing the arrest. The officers, however, had feared that I might make a speech to the soldier. In that case, we would have been lost, one of them told me afterwards. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop reading right here. This was part five of Alexandra Kollontai's autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist woman. And we're leaving her in jail in after the July days, uh, which was an uprising that happened in Petersburg that was blamed on the Bolsheviks. And she is now sitting in prison and awaiting what will eventually be the Bolshevik uh, revolution in October. Uh, Lenin has escaped and he is hiding in Finland and the Russians are still locked down and bogged down in the First World War. Popular sentiment of the workers and the soldiers is at an all-time low. 
the morale of the army and the navy is in the pits and so basically we are slowly moving towards the events that will you know make history in the bolshevik revolution of october of which as it's really important to remember kolontai as she says here was a very important uh, character she she doesn't say that she's a hero but she basically says she was the only woman intimately involved she was a great supporter of lenin and she was uh compelled in in july to return to russia even though she knew that she would most likely be arrested as a German spy. All right, well, that's it for this episode. This has been AK-47, 47 selections from the works of Alexander Kollontai. My name is Kristen Godsey. Thank you so much for listening, and keep up the good fight. Yeah.